Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Ben Cooper is a Christian husband, father of five, author, speaker, and beekeeper. Ben used his second cancer diagnosis as a therapy to launch his writing journey of Christian devotionals and children's books. His love of farming and nature is the backdrop of his writing. Ben, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. So we have to talk about the beekeeping, <laughs> but but first, what struck me in your bio outside of the bees was you said second cancer diagnosis. So I would love for you to take us back to the beginning of that first cancer diagnosis and tell us where your journey began. That was about 19 years ago, and it actually probably 20 years ago about this time. and. I've always had sinus problems, and to explain it a little bit better, I on the left side of my nose, uh, every morning I would wake up and I would clear my sinuses, but a small little blood clot would come out. And so it bothered me a little bit, but I was used to working on the farm and dust and having allergies, that that wasn't a big thing, but my wife said I probably should have that checked. And I did. Uh, my ear, nose, and throat doctor was actually a farming friend of mine. So he was a friend before he was my doctor. And oddly enough, to uh, think forward, uh, I got him involved with beekeeping as well. So uh, we connect in several different ways. But he became my doctor and became very serious really quick. Uh, I went in to see him. And when I did, he said, can you go get an MRI today? Not schedule it, go get one today. That's never good. When I brought and bring the films back to him, I did. And uh, he said, uh, we need to do a biopsy. Normally he would schedule a biopsy at the hospital in my upper sinuses. And he said, can I do that today? Right now in his office. So that kind of let me know that something that he saw was very serious, but still not thinking the cancer word. You know, without being too graphic, if you can imagine getting a tooth pulled, but it isn't your tooth, getting a sample from your upper sinus passages, it was, uh, I imagine my eyes crossed back and forth several times, but it was painful, but he sent that away. And then it wasn't till a Friday night, six o'clock, a phone call. I got one of those phone calls you get all the time at six o'clock that somebody wants to extend your warranty or sell you something that you don't want. <laughs> and I tried to get them off the phone. I had to hang up because I'm expecting my doctor to call. And he called and he said, it's cancerous and called me for next time, uh, the next day in the office. And he scheduled within a short period of time that Tuesday, I was already scheduled to have a specialist in Baltimore take a look at me and 
figure out and map out what was going to happen from there. So what started as a small little blood clot ended up involving brain surgery, a rhinectomy, which is basically they take your nose and partly separate it and just a lot more, overwhelmingly more. You mentioned that I'm a double cancer survivor. That first cancer was scary and it was life threatening. The second cancer was life changing and we might have time to get into that. What type of cancer was it? It was adenocarcinoma, which started from an adeno okay. gland in uh, my nose, upper sinus passage. And your body has a lot of different uh, adeno glands throughout its core. And I, I've never smoked a cigarette. I'm 60 years old, never smoked a cigarette in my life. But I breathed a carcinogenic in some point in, in my life you're probably familiar with the different stages. So as a cancer patient, as soon as you hear that word and shock dissipates and you start to think what next, you wanna know what it is, where it came from, how you got it and what stage of cancer it is. And so that stuff takes yep. time. Patience is kind of hard to have when you want answers now. Uh, I actually went to NORD, uh, National Organization of Rare Diseases, to find some information on that specific cancer. It was about 3.999 stage, so it hadn't invaded. I didn't find that out until actually after the surgery because they did almost exploratory surgery. So knowing those things, those stages that almost every cancer patient goes through is shock, disbelief, a time of emotions, then you're a sponge and you want to sink, you, you want to take in all the information you can so you can make the best decision uh, of how to proceed. And then you want the cancer out of you as quick as possible. The hardest part is waiting from diagnosis to surgery. I have a question just to help people understand. So adenocarcinoma is a type of solid tumor. Like you said, it can occur in different parts of the body. But as far as um, sort of the general term, was it considered head neck? Was it considered throat cancer? You know, because it was in your sinuses or it, they just called it a carcinoma and left it there. It would be labeled as head neck because it's in my head and it was in the upper sinuses. Actually, if you can imagine a three by five card, they actually removed this much of my forehead. They cut from one ear to the top what? of my head down to the other ear. I had 43 staples when I was done. They removed my, my skull from the forehead and lifted the brain and went about it from a rhinectomy and down this way. I had a third of my eye socket removed and bone graft uh, left eye orbit and uh, some skull base bone grafting and they used the back part of that skull piece that they removed for bone graft material. And when you have a neurosurgeon explain what they're going to do, it's a t roughly a two and a half hour road trip to Baltimore from where I live, uh, right along the Mason-Dixon line, just one mile into Pennsylvania, to have my wife and I sit there. For a half hour, we said nothing to each other coming back. And then finally I said, I never in my life would have believed I would have heard a doctor explain to anybody else, including me, what they were about to do to me. 
and just amazing. I was thinking, you know, medicine has gone really well, Orth orthoscopic surgery, small little area, and they can go in and do stuff. They can fix shoulders and joints and other things, but right. I had no idea what, I was kind of fearful. What am I going to look like whenever this is all done? My step-grandfather had head neck cancer. He was 82 though, and um, he did die from the cancer. And the tumor was the size of a lemon. But after that first surgery, they took off his ear. And that was the only ear that worked. He knew waking up from the surgery, he was going to be mostly deaf. But knowing that and then waking up from that surgery and having stitches all the way down the, the side, basically, of, of his face and the ears completely gone was totally different. But you were young. I mean, you were 40, right? I was 40. We had five kids. My youngest was just born the last day of December, my surgery. The neurosurgeon said, come here April. Well, he said, get your taxes done first and come here April 15th. And that's your surgery date. So I found out in February and I had to wait till April 15th with five young kids. So I did something that probably seems weird to some. Two weeks prior to going down, I completely shaved my head. So my kids got used to seeing me that way before I came, you know, if I came back strange, they were only going to shave the portion that they cut. So I said, there's no way I'm coming home with a reverse opposite mohawk. They were just going to cut the area <laughs> and shave that area. And I said, I'm right. not coming home looking like that. So cancer patients have very little control. Once you sign the papers and you go in, it's, it's all left to somebody else and you just lay on a table or you lay on a bed to recover. The control I had is I don't want my kids to be shocked to see a different dad come home from the hospital. So I shaved my head and kept it shaved for two weeks prior to going in. And that was kind of some mental therapy and some things that I could do to put some control into uh, what was about to happen. I think that was brilliant, not just for your kids, but for you, just getting used to seeing yourself that way. After the surgery, what was the treatment plan? Surgery was 10 and a half hours. I spent a week in intensive care. There's oh three days God. off of the, my life that I don't remember um, because I was sedated. Wow. My brain had swelled. And so uh, my wife and our youngest daughter that was just an infant, my parents and my brother were there. I was told stories that I don't recollect. So I didn't start remembering anything. Monday was surgery and I don't remember anything until Thursday. So there's days off of a uh, little over three days that I don't remember much of anything. Actually, I had a decision to make. Do I just have the rhinectomy and go get the, the tumor out of my upper sinus or have the brain surgery as, and the rhinectomy, the craniotomy and a, and a rhinectomy? And I chose to have both, to be prepared to have both. And the doctor said that was a good choice because the cancer cells had invaded the internal skull base. There wasn't any in the lymph nodes. There wasn't anything into the brain. And again, I used humor. I saved one of those big two foot square brain scans. Having five young children, 
I kind of had to carry some of my stuff and I snuck one and I kept one away thinking when teenage years come, if I survive this, I want proof that their dad has a brain. And if they question me, I could hold that <laughs> x-ray up. Humor helped me get through so much of this. To have life-threatening cancer, my percentage with just the surgery was a 35% survival rate. I ended up having surgery, both surgeries and radiation, 130 radiation treatments to the face in six and a half weeks. Oh I goodness. lost the hair in the back of my head, no eyebrows. And if you know radiation, it has ill-term long effects. So now, even though it's been almost 20 years, I have severe cataracts in both eyes because of the trauma, the surgery and the radiation. Yeah, I'm 60 years old, but I didn't have the problem. The, the cataracts come earlier than most people have to deal with them because of the radiation primarily. And so it's hard for me to find a good pair of glasses to see because I still have to pick up something that helps me magnify smaller words and print. So those are some things that I had to deal with as I mapped out. And, and you know what, how can one be thankful when they're going through things like severe cancer surgery and especially radiation? I was thankful because I was the youngest person there for six and a half weeks getting radiation. Mm. If I would have been where there was young kids and other stuff, that, that would have been hard. I know that takes place, but most of the people were older than me. I, I left on Mondays, went to Baltimore, three, two and a half hour trip, stayed with a friend uh, during the week, left on Friday mornings to come home. Uh, and that's how I spent my summer after having or after having the surgery. And so you go through the radiation. At what point did you get the no evidence of disease? Didn't get that even to this day. They just went through their protocol. You know, some cancer treatments or centers let you ring a bell or something when you're done with your treatments right. or you get a graduation ceremony. <laughs> I had none of that stuff. Actually, two and a half weeks into it, when I first talked to the oncologist, I asked him, am I going to lose my hair? He said, no, our machines are pinpoint and they're good. Uh, they're going to go and penetrate only what they need to penetrate. And two and a half weeks, the hair in the back of my head started falling out. At that point, I kind of almost was resolved to just quit and not go through the radiation. I kind of had to be talked into by one of the nurses to, no, you don't want to have it come back. Just like most people, the, the true test is that five-year cancer-free moment. Most of the people that had a similar type of cancer, if they made it five years without any signs, then it was pretty much gone. So there was no immediate gratification. It was just a long waiting process. Did you make it that five years? Yes, I made it five years. In fact, as a celebratory thing, year four, I started to get a little bit more in shape and ran a, a 5K race. And I said, year five, I'm going to run it. And I want to finish strong and finish well enough to uh, place and get my name in the paper to be. Uh, and so I met that challenge, the five-year cancer free, and then uh, also ran well enough to uh, kind of like puff up my chest and say, yeah, this is my victory race. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. So 
you get past that surgery, the radiation, that particular diagnosis, at what point do you get the next cancer? How old are you? What were the symptoms, if any, and what type of cancer? Well, just about 15 years later, you think life, you know, life with a young family is busy working, involved with all kinds of stuff. And you get to that five-year cancer-free and you kind of like, exhale. Anything, I made it. And so you get busy again. So I got just a regular routine checkup and my PSA numbers were high. And my doctor wanted okay. me to go and have biopsies now again. And so uh, biopsies came back not good. And in three months time, my PSA numbers uh, doubled. Almost immediately said, we really strongly encourage uh, surgery. It's almost as hard for the patient to hear the cancer word as it is for the doctors to deliver it, especially when one of them was a close friend of mine. Uh, my mm. urologist, uh, it was hard. He said, it's never easy to tell somebody that they have cancer. He said, you've been through it before. My wife said, well, you kind of know the ropes. And he said, it's a curable cancer. But if it, yeah, I go back to my statement, that second cancer was life changing not as life-threatening but still i went to baltimore to uh, johns hopkins and had one of the best um, facilities for prostate cancer and was in and out of there in less than 40 hours and was on my way back home at 10 o'clock at night they discharged i left the hospital i swear my brother hit every bump on the road possible on the way back um, but there wasn't any follow-up really to that surgery it was all done robotically uh, so no human hands touched me some kid that loved to play video games as a kid became a doctor and and they were working Hopkins <laughs> as a teaching school so somebody was working on a computer and had things on their fingers to do to run the the robot da Vinci is yeah, the name of the robot that does kidney yep. and, and prostate cancer uh, surgery. So I come out with about five or six holes across my, my lower abdomen. Then again, I started that same process. Let me get to five years cancer free. And each time I would have my blood work done for PSAs, it would come back lower than what they can register. The hardest part was I was diagnosed about the first of, uh, or towards the end of November. And I had to wait until March 18th for surgery. That's an <sighs> eternity to wait to get what? cancer out of I mean, I, I mean, I understand, you know, having to get through the holidays, but why couldn't they get you in sooner? Why couldn't they get you in January? I don't know. They said, well, prostate cancer is slow moving, but in some cases it can be fast. So that's an eternity to worry. And worry doesn't add anything to your health. It actually takes away and deteriorates your health if you are consumed with it. So three days after the surge, or after the diagnosis and the date was set, my mind kicked in and said, what am I going to do for over three months? How am I going to deal with this? And I was brought back to the point, reminded, I think, again, by God to, hey, you know, I had a book for you to write. So three days after that date, I picked up, I changed. Instead of worry, I started writing. The future seemed a little cloudy or started to get a little bit worrisome. I just wrote. 
I, I picked up the paper, a, a paper and, and pen laid next to my bed at the nightstand if it was three o'clock in the morning or whenever. And I just started to write. How can somebody be thankful for cancer? That doesn't make sense. That launched me into writing. But my first cancer, my therapy wasn't writing. My first cancer surgery, my therapy was I was thankful that I had cancer because I wouldn't be able to handle it if it was one of my kids. I, I went into it. People say, why me? And I looked at it as, why not me? Why am I exempt? I'm not any different. Cancer is ugly. Cancer is non-discriminatory. And so that was my first therapy. Writing was my second therapy. And that launched me into the benefits and the blessings that came from me writing. And if it took cancer to nudge me into that direction, you know, I'm thankful for that. Just to clarify, so the, the prostate cancer, all you needed was surgery. You didn't need any other therapy because it was caught so early. Is the that robot correct? did it all. And I've had robotic surgery as well. And uh, and I have the same probably in the similar areas. I have a little like dashes across my abdomen from the robotic arms. Tell us, because I'm so fascinated about the beekeeping. When did that start? I'm somebody that if all the fish are going one direction, I go the other way. The Charles Corralt kind of the road less trap. So you're, so you're salmon, well, right? All the salmon might be going upstream. I'd be the one going downstream. Hey, this is easier. But at 14, I chose beekeeping as a 4-H project. I had no mentor and didn't have any help. At 14? And it was part of 4-H. And I was the only person in 4-H in the county I grew up in Western Pennsylvania that was getting into beekeeping. And so there's periods where I didn't do it. And, and even through college, I was still trying to keep bees. And when I finally got my own home, I started keeping bees to bring this back into the cancer world. My ear, nose and throat oncologist from Baltimore, the second time he visited, I actually took the liberty to check him out, check the doctor out that was going to do the surgery. I said, how do you go about paying for this? He said, well, you've got good insurance. This is going to cover most of it. I said, that's not the way we work things out in the mountains. I said, I was thinking, you know, a couple chickens, a half a side of beef. I said, some honey or maple syrup. And he said, you make your own maple syrup. And I said, I gave him a jar of honey. And he said, and you make your own, can I get some maple syrup? I said, ask me that question after the surgery is successful. So he got his maple syrup afterwards. I'm passionate about most everything. If I'm involved, I'm 120% involved. If I'm not, I'm just not interested at all. That's just the way I'm wired. And so I've been involved with beekeeping. I just finished this week teaching beekeeping classes. About 250 people have taken my beekeeping classes. Uh, that's actually a credit course, a uh, 15 hour course. And I have mentors and people calling and coming all the time that my bee yard is open for people that want to learn. It's not about selling honey. It's about sharing the experience of being a beekeeper. So. Um, it just connects me with nature and allows me to write a lot more because of that connection. And I learn more and more uh, each year that I work with bees. So I want to circle back to cancer. And 
it's interesting. You had two different kinds of cancer. I would say radically different kinds of cancer. Maybe the only similarities is that head and neck is more common in men than women. What was your worst moment? I had everything in my control planned. My youngest daughter, we were going to do a baby dedication on a Sunday and then Sunday afternoon drive down to Baltimore and be ready and go and stay overnight with some friends. And and then five days before this all happens, the hospital called and says, you need a stealth MRI and they don't offer it up in your area. You need to come down here. We need to have you scheduled for Sunday. I was the type of person that planned and wanted to have control as much as I could. And once I laid down and got, you know, count backwards from 100 and you're out. For me, it was over three days. They took the control that I had away and they said, well, just change your baby dedication. And that was therapy as well for me. A chance for my family to get together, to have something that was uplifting and good right before you go to something so very serious. And they took that away. And I was saddened when they wanted to say, I I called and I I complained. I wasn't happy with that decision. If they knew that I needed that stealth MRI, why are they waiting to the last week to tell me? And that kind of threw all my plans and preparations out the window. And I had not just me, but my wife and five kids to think about as well. And my parents and where they're gonna stay in a hotel reservation to deal with and all that stuff. And in some big hospitals, you are maybe less of a person and more of a, a patient with a number. I don't want to pin that on, yeah. on them too tightly, but uh, the person that I dealt with, thankfully, University of Maryland, Baltimore campus had a um, tumor consultant that allowed you to vent and work things out. They had somebody that would listen to me, but their, their way of dealing with it, well, let's maybe put you on some sedatives. And I said, absolutely not. I worked up until the day before, and I had a lot of contracts with work. I worked with farmers with Maryland Department of Ag- Agriculture, and they were worrying, who's going to take over if you're going to be gone for a while? I, I missed five months that year. Everybody has a day like that where as much as you plan, somebody or something comes along and just destroys everything that you had. It helps test your resolve to see. I was not wrong in challenging the hospital and saying, why didn't you tell me this months ago? I had months to wait and prepare. And why do you wait to the last minute? My doctor even offered to drive me down Saturday himself. I said, no, I'm asking the hospital to make a change. So we didn't get to have the baby dedication. Then what we did was um, they scheduled it. They wouldn't do it on a Sunday, but they scheduled somebody to come in specifically to do that on a Sunday. You should have told me earlier. And so you need to work this out with my schedule. Not, I said, I, I've got people coming five hours away to watch our kids and to do other stuff and help be part of this. And, and so um, they, they complied. I had something similar happen where I had a very serious thyroid disease in my early 20s. And after being in the hospital for five days, I knew a few months later I was going to have radiation the day before I was scheduled for radiation. And, and it was completely outpatient. They told me, oh, and by the way, 
you technically are quote unquote radioactive for three days. So you cannot be around children. You cannot be around other people's food. You have to isolate yourself and stay home for three days. And at the time I was raising my sister, I was a teacher (laughs) and I also uh, made extra money part-time as a waitress. And they told me the day before it was so bizarre that they didn't even bother to tell me beforehand. And I didn't know how to be a really good proactive patient at that time. It never occurred to me to ask if there were any precautions I needed to take. I feel yeah. yeah I really it's those, oh, by, oh, by the um, way, statements that come and they can just basically yes. wreck you in a moment's time. My wife was in tears and called me. They, they've scheduled this. They called her and talked to her. My first comment to the person that was making the arrangement she would she refused to take any more calls from me because she thought i was threatening to her i don't swear i don't cuss i don't threaten but i was upset that they called my wife instead of me i said i'm the patient you call me there was a little lack of respect i think for the person and they just see you as a patient with the brain surgery and the rhinectomy I ask a few questions to the oncologist and says, we don't know what causes this cancer. We just know what we got to do to do the surgery. We do one of these a week. We just know what we got to do to get the cancer out. We don't know much about it. And so that doesn't always help you understand what did I do? What did I breathe in? What was I involved with to stay away from? But now I'm ultra sensitive to all kinds of things, even allergy shots almost threatened my life afterwards because I can't take shots that it it affects things in my sinuses ultra sensitive that my local doctor said that with all this dealings with vaccine mandates and things I am not a good person to be one to take a vaccine because I had an infection in my head from an allergy shot that nearly about two more hours untreated would have killed me I have sensitivities that can't be broad brushed. And to see me, you wouldn't be able to tell, to look at me, that combination of being an author and a cancer survivor. You can't always judge a book. People say, well, you look great. They have no idea what's going on inside of you and the struggles that you have on a daily basis. Almost 20 years later, I have a sinus infection every day of my life. I've learned what I've got to do to deal with that. I'm 60 and I don't take any prescription medication. And so I've learned to deal with what I can as naturally as possible. At that time of that first diagnosis, you were young, you were 40, five children, your youngest was just born. How old was your oldest child and how much does he or she remember about that time? Our kids are just like 10 and a half years apart. So right now I have a 19 year old and a 29 year old. They remember dad's shaven head, the older three. I have three boys and then two girls. They remember dad's shaven head and coming back with these 43 staples on the top of the head. I've tried to do my very best to work with them. And and when they were younger, you don't have to necessarily be so consumed in anxiety that I think they learned through my process of how I handled using humor and finding a healthy alternative to deal with the waiting time so that more is caught than taught, if you understand that with kids being a teacher. 
they watch you and probably learn more from what your reactions are than what you teach them. And so hopefully I've instilled in them oh, yeah. that could seem hopeless, but there's always something you can do to kind of that calm things down and work through. I'm thankful that I wasn't told the whole list of everything that was going to happen to me that first doctor's visit because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. If I got the worst case scenario yeah. on day one, that could be very devastating and hard to process. And some people do not process cancer very well and they choose other alternatives which are not healthy. Every little bit, I got a little more information even though it wasn't what I wanted to hear, but it also helped to have a support team of my church, my family, and people I don't even know that prayed for me through the whole situation, and especially day of surgery, people that fasted and prayed for me. That is amazing in itself. People I don't even know sending me letters of encouragement. I can hear it in your voice. It still affects you today. Yeah, I have all those letters saved in a shoebox. Even 20 years later, if something tomorrow happens and I feel like, you know what, nobody understands, nobody, you know, where's everybody, where's my support? I, all I have to do is go back and read a whole bunch of letters and cards and things that were sent to me. Uh, my wife would print out emails even from out of the country and bring them down when she visited me in the hospital. And I would just be consumed of, uh, of reading all those things and, and just relishing in the impact that I must have made on somebody else because they made an impact on me. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? How much I would grow from it. At the very beginning, I expected that it was life or death. And sure. the attitude I went into it using, again, comedy and other things, just trying to, I called that first surgery hockey surgery because they were going to take my face off. And that's just humor that I used. And um, and people would laugh, but then said, you know, you're disturbed or you're something's wrong with you. But I had to deal with it. I used to read Reader's Digest a lot. And it was laughter's the best medicine that I was always drawn to that column. Because despite of what's going on, a little bit of levity really at the right point can help and it's therapeutic. And so I, if I would have known God had a bigger plan in all this from the beginning, that would have helped, but it would have taken some of the blessing and the surprises out of the process. So it worked out like it was supposed to work out. Very well said. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., Ben, what would it be and why? I would just uh, try to make a difference in every children's hospital in the U.S. If anybody thinks that they've been dealt a bad hand as an adult, just go sit in the waiting room of a children's hospital for see how long you can stay there and still feel sorry for yourself. If I had any special gift or anything, uh, it's that we would never need to have a children's hospital of any kind because that's heart-wrenching to see. Uh, like I, I shared with you, I was thankful that I didn't see little kids having to go through radiation where I was. That, that was a blessing. I was the youngest one there at 40. Are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Oh, go ahead and fire away. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains, every time. 
Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? And it would be the Beach Boys. That's conflicting, but I could sing to all the Beach Boys songs. I love the Beach Boys. What is one word that best describes you? Um, Engaging. It's all in or not in at all. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Um, Not really sure. Um, that, That is probably a hymn. Be Thou My Vision is probably my most favorite hymn. I like it. What about the last meal you want to eat? I'm a steak and potatoes kind of guy. It's got to have ice cream, though. You got to finish it (laughs) off with ice cream. And the last person or people you want to see? Family. Be surrounded by family. And the last words you will speak? I would have to say uh, what I people ask me right now. How you doing? I said, I'm living a dream. And even my last words would be living a dream. And aside from Cancer You, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I also want you to tell people where they can find your books. I shared earlier on that if you have a, a, a rare type of cancer, the National Organization of Rare Diseases or NORD is an excellent resource and they will get information where even doctors and hospitals have a hard time finding it. And so you have to kind of be diagnosed with something that isn't normal. You're not going to do that for, uh, you know, mumps or measles or uh, something like that, but it it has to qualify as a a rare disease. And that just, that's beyond cancer as well. So that's a really good, it was a helpful site for me. And I think it's nord.org and uh, my books uh, are available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, All Nature Sings is my first book that came out of cancer and now a children's series that deals with created critters. I will soon be coming out with, uh, my my second book is coming out next month. And I'm also uh, added on as a contributing writer to Guidepost magazine uh, publications as well. So, and if anybody has any questions, the easiest way to get a hold of me is... uh, my email address is cooperville, C-O-O-P-E-R-V-I-L-L-E, at AtlanticBB.net. So it's AtlanticBroadband.net. Okay. We will put all that in the workshop and show notes. What is the name of your book that's coming out in two months? Created Critters with Fur. The first one was Created Critters with Wings. Because <laughs> I'm a beekeeper, my illustrator is a beekeeper, and we have a hidden bee on every illustration in that first book kind of a where's Waldo kind of thing, but bringing it to the beekeeping world. The second one is a hidden mouse in every illustration in the children's uh, picture rhyming book. I love it. Um, As someone who used to be a teacher, I always appreciate a good children's book. So we will put links to it as well. Ben, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.